the truth is, I haven't gone outside for about a week. I haven't been out of the house once. I've been holed up writing songs like a madman, and I haven't had an opportunity to go out and partake in anything. But tonight, I'm going to go out, and I'm going to go hang out with some friends, and I'm going to hit some bars here in East Nashville, and we're going to have a good time. And there's a strong possibility that something amazing might take place. And I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to do this as often as I can this week so that I will come up with something much better to talk about at the intro of next week's show. That's my promise to you. Hi friends, this is Otis Gibbs and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in my living room in East Nashville, Tennessee. This is a personal journal. This is a bit of an experiment. I like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. And this show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's the creative individual and the person experiencing it. And everything else is an artificial filter. And this is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is Peter Cooper. Not only is Peter a singer and songwriter, but he's also the senior music writer at the Tennessean in Nashville. And if that wasn't enough, he's also the senior lecturer in country music at Vanderbilt University's Blair School of Music. And you can find out everything you need to know about Peter at petercoopermusic.com. Peter and I hooked up at our buddy Eric Brace's house here in East Nashville. It's also the Red Beat Records headquarters, and we recorded this. And afterwards, we sat around and talked for another hour or so. Peter's a bit of an encyclopedia of country music history, and just got a lot of great stories, and I love hearing that kind of stuff, so I just sat there for another hour listening to it. But we have a lot to get to, so I think we ought to jump right into this. Here's Peter Cooper. was born in Florence, South Carolina, and we moved around a good bit when I was a kid. My dad was a Methodist minister uh, for a lot of my childhood, and so that means you move every couple of years. Uh, but spent more time in Columbia, South Carolina as a kid than, than other places, and then went to high school in the Northern Virginia area. So got to be a part of that whole, not a part, but an observer of that wonderful Washington, D.C. roots music scene, and that's really where I started latching on to whatever this stuff is. Went to college down in Spartanburg, South Carolina, uh, because if you can choose any place in the world to go, you know, have a good time <laughs> in college, it'd be Spartanburg. And I actually learned to love that town, and there's a ton of music that's come from there uh, that I started finding out about, like Uncle Walt's band, which was a real predecessor to this whole Americana hullabaloo. You know, they were the... you know great string band kind of thing, Old Crow, before there was Old Crow. That was David Ball and Walter Hyatt and Champ Hood. The Marshall Chapman's from there, the Marshall Tucker Band, Pink Anderson, the great bluesman, Hank Garland, maybe the greatest session guitarist in Nashville history. At least that's what Jed Atkins told me. Uh, all these folks are from Spartanburg, and there's there's a lot of music there. So started learning about that and uh, hung around Spartanburg some after after school as well. 
Did you know that these people were from there when you lived there, or did you find out later? No, I, I, I was finding out through college. I was really looking into Roots music. I'd read Fry Gilliard's book, Watermelon Wine, which was about singer-songwriters in Nashville in the 1970s. And I just started getting way deep into all of it. And I was looking around every corner to see if something interesting had happened there. Were you a baseball fan growing up? Yeah, huge baseball fan. Um, I mean, the the, uh, the cover of this opening day album was, it's a photo of me at my very first Major League Baseball game when I was eight years old. My uncle took the picture and now now it's an album cover. <laughs> but huge baseball fan. Uh, growing up, I just I love the game and it's a I love the rhythm of the season and it's kind of set up to break your heart, kind of like a good song is. You know, you start with start out April with such hope. You know, no matter who you are, and then somewhere through the season that that turns sour <laughs> and you, you realize you're going to have to readjust your expectations and maybe start looking to the deep future. But it's a it's a great game and I love being here in Nashville because we have the sounds and can go to AAA games, which are so much fun because, you know, if a major league game, if it's if it's eight to one in the bottom of the seventh, you kind of know how things are going, barring a miracle. Uh, and everyone on the field treats it as such. But here, man, if you're coming to the plate down eight to one or up eight to one in the seventh inning, uh, you're in AAA, you are on the edge. And what you do in that moment with just a scattered Tuesday night crowd there can – you know, go a long way towards dictating what you get to do with your life. You know, that this is a big time stakes every matchup. So I love AAA baseball. When I was in high school, I'd go to the Birchmere most weeks to see a band called the Seldom Scene. They were a progressive bluegrass band that's played from a wonderful catalog of, of songs. And that's where I found out about Stanley Brothers and Emmylou Harris and Graham Parsons and all sorts of stuff these guys would play. They'd do a great Dylan cover or two and marvelous band. And also coming into the Birchmere were lots of other folks. And this was in the 80s during what Steve Earle called our great credibility scare in Nashville. When you had Steve Earle and Nancy Griffith and Lyle Lovett, and the O'Kanes, these kinds of artists... Uh, on major labels as major label country acts, Rodney Crowell and Roseanne Cash. And, you know, there was a time when Nancy Griffith and Loretta Lynn were both major label country artists on MCA. They were label mates, you know. So that was the my introduction to the notion of Nashville was during that time, and it seemed like so many uh, really intelligent lyricists and deft musicians were coming from Nashville. So I always had it in the back of my head that it'd be an interesting place to go to. And then uh, came here one time, right after college was my first trip to Nashville. Came with my then girlfriend, now wife, and I wanted to go to Groon Guitars. I didn't have any money to buy a guitar or anything like that. I just wanted to look at guitars. And so first stop in Nashville, we find Groon Guitars and walk in the very first thing I noticed in Nashville was this guy sitting down playing a banjo in the front room at Groon, and it was John Hartford. I just thought, this is my kind of town. The 
Next night, I saw John Hyatt. The night after that, uh, saw Towns Van Zandt show. That was terrible. It was not a good Towns Van Zandt show. It was one of those. But I still, I just thought, well, this is the the magic place. So I was writing for a newspaper. I taught middle school for four years, and I feel much better now. Um, but then I went to, I wrote a book about the history of music in Spartanburg, South Carolina which, as I said before, is actually a really interesting place. Kind of like Lubbock, Texas, one of those places. I don't know why so many people come from there, but they do. And after I wrote that book, uh, the newspaper in Spartanburg called and asked if I wanted to to write for them, if I would consider quitting middle school teaching. And it took me a quarter of a second of deep thought before coming back with an emphatic yes to that. Yes, I would consider, I have been considering it every moment of my life for the past four years. <laughs> so I went to work as kind of a general assignment reporter. I'd cover a drowning or, or, or some political event, but I'd also write a weekly column about music and started doing that. Uh, and then a job came open in 2000 at the Tennessean in Nashville, and I just applied and got lucky and got to come here with a job, which is a luxury not afforded many people. Uh, and so March of 2000 moved here and uh, was so happy to be here, just immediately captivated by this place. Did you move to the east side originally? Yeah, I did. I, I moved to the east side. Uh, I rented a house for, I don't know, a year or so, and then they were going to sell that house. I had to get out of there and found another house on uh, just down the street. And East Nashville was it was still some brave urban pioneering going on. Um, good spectator sport was our first night in our house watching drug deals go down on the sidewalk. And um, that's all right. You know, this was the last place near to town, near Nashville proper, where uh, creative people could afford to move in. And, and so as a result, We've got this wonderful pocket of talent. It's not just music. It's it's chefs and uh, it's uh, baristas and it's painters and it's photographers and authors. And it's just such an inspiring place to walk around. You know, you, you can't you can't duck in and out of the coffee shop because you're going to see 12 fascinating people that you want to have conversations with. It's a really good way to live your life is at every turn bumping into interesting people who remind you that maybe you ought to be working on being interesting too. (laughs) (laughs) My first assignment for the Tennessean was South by Southwest and I I followed Dwayne Jarvis and Amy Rigby and David Olney around South by Southwest. Yes, Olney uh, explained to an audience while I was there, he goes, I'm I'm down here to, um, you know, uh, further my career. So uh, anything any of you folks can do to that end, uh, <laughs> go right ahead. And then, <laughs> and then he had he had a meeting with this guy who was uh, explaining to him about the internet. And uh, this is in 2000, and he wasn't really too hip to the internet and all the possibilities that that were there. And the guy's going, David, we can do this, and giving him all sorts of technical things to to think about and. And David goes, look, um, I just want to be the master of my own domain. Okay? 
Can we do that? <laughs> Absolutely, David. Absolutely. <laughs> that was, by the way, that, that South by Southwest was the first time I heard a musician kind of actively pumping East Nashville. Dwayne Jarvis uh, had his, his name tag where it would, it would, everybody else's name would say their name and then Nashville, Tennessee, and his said East Nashville, Tennessee. And he made a point of that. So Dwayne was really leading the charge around here for that, you know, for that as an identity that we were a little bit different than what folks were thinking of the regular Nashville as being. That's really interesting because I typically think of Todd Snyder as being, he's the first person I heard about East mm -hmm. Nashville through. That was huge. When Todd came out with that album called East Nashville Skyline, that, that let the world in on it. Maybe the whole world wasn't at South by Southwest reading Dwayne's name tag, but... Uh, <laughs> But that was a big thing when when Todd put that album out, and I think um, I think between Dwayne and Todd, and then Skip Litz, who was kind of the unofficial mayor of East Nashville, those guys really really got the ball rolling. When I'm writing stories, I, I really I want people to pick the paper up and see the story, or go online, or however it is that you kids consume media these days, uh, I want you to be surprised. I, d I don't want you to know what I'm going to write about before you read it. And so, um, yeah, I like to, sometimes there's a, a history marker coming up, like recently the 50th anniversary of the Leuven brothers breaking up. And I happen to have the phone number of the guy who rode in the car with them as they were screaming at each other <laughs> and called him and asked him what that ride was like back from Watsika. <laughs> to Nashville said it was not all altogether a pleasant ride actually <laughs> and I had had written about Woodland Sound Studios uh, some and, and about the Will the Circle Be Unbroken album that was recorded there that's here in East Nashville and got an email from this guy named Glenn Snotty who said hey thanks for writing about Woodland Studios I, I ran that place for years and years and I was like Glenn Snotty that's I know this name and turns out he's 91 years old, and, and he, he met me out at a little, little restaurant near where he lives and just told me the whole story about how he invented the fuzz tone guitar pedal. And it came about because they, they were working on a Marty Robbins session uh, for a song called Don't Worry, and Grady Martin was playing guitar, kind of a clean-sounding electric guitar and something malfunctioned and it came out with this crazy fuzz tone and everybody at first was like oh man what are we going to do we're going to have to you know stop the session and then so i was like well it's kind of cool sounding <laughs> and so then other people started wanting that tone after that song got to be a number one hit by marty robbins and so uh, uh someone was coming to town i think it was nancy sinatra was coming to town to record and specifically requested the fuzz tone, but the thing that had malfunctioned and created the fuzz tone was now entirely broken. So they had to figure out something to do. And Glenn Snotty just goes to work and replicates it through a guitar pedal that he devises, creates this thing. It works great. Sounds just like the fuzz tone on Don't Worry by Marty Robbins and takes it to the Gibson Company in Chicago. He doesn't play guitar, but he has a friend plugs in and plays this thing and Gibson bought it up. He's got his name on the patent, and uh, it didn't sell all that well the first couple of years. But then over in uh, in 
England somewhere. Uh, the Rolling Stones are recording, and Keith Richards has one of these things, and they're doing a song called Satisfaction, and he plugs that in and goes, dun, 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 and sales went pretty well after that <laughs> hit the market. So, yeah, that that's... Thank you, Glenn Snotty, for the sound of rock and roll aggression. You mentioned Woodland. That's right here in East Nashville. And um, there's a lot of great history there. I'm, I'm a sucker for hearing the stories of the local history, and sometimes it's hard to find that information. But I know The Circle Be Unbroken was recorded there, mm-hmm. and I believe I heard Dust in the Wind was recorded there. Mm-hmm. And I met a couple guys from the Little River Band when I was touring in Ireland, and they told me a few of their hits were recorded there. Yeah, bunch of stuff there. They they would take a lot of outside of Nashville acts, and then a lot of inside Nashville stuff too. Loretta Lynn cut a lot of stuff there. It was it was really a um, a happening place, and in a part of town that was not really happening at that point. Glenn Snotty said they pretty well had to lock the doors during the daytime because. Um, you had to be careful who one time there was a police chase and it ended up inside of Woodland, uh, them chasing the guy into <laughs> Woodland. They'd forgotten to lock the door that day. So, it, you know, it was a good studio because people had to make an effort to go there and it was not a place with a bunch of creature comforts, but the most amazing session had to have been, will the circle be unbroken where you had the nitty gritty dirt band coming from out West. They had yet to, to come to Nashville, uh, to live and we're not considered a country band, but they had this notion inspired by Earl Scruggs and his Earl Scruggs review that was a cross-generational band. They had this notion that that they, as long-haired youngsters, could get into the studio with their heroes of Roots music and, and make music with Mother Mabel Carter and Earl Scruggs and Doc Watson and Merle Travis and Roy Acuff and Jimmy Martin. So all those folks, every time I pass Woodland, I just imagine those people walking through that door, you know, and looking around and going, okay, we're going to do what, huh? And it worked out. It worked out really good. And Acuff had to be convinced because he, he wasn't much into the long-haired folks. Otis, he might have been a bit wary of you. <laughs> uh, but uh, Earl Scruggs' wife, Louise, vouched for the dirt band guys. And Earl said they were good boys. And so Roy said... Okay, and they went ahead and they went ahead and cut. It, it, it turned out to be a pretty magical deal in our, in our nice textbook for how we can do things. One of the greatest things for me about being involved with music has been the chance to be around Lloyd Green. For those who don't know about him, he is, you know, I hate to make these people aren't these people's legacies arm wrestle each other. Uh, you know, I, I say he's the greatest pedal steel player of all time. That just means he's my favorite is really what that means, but pretty dang good. And certainly in the discussion, if anybody's wanting to argue about the greatest, they have to be arguing about Lloyd green. He's played on over a hundred number one records. He's played with Paul McCartney and actually turned down the chance, the invitation to be in McCartney's band wings. Cause he was, doing too well here in Nashville on studio sessions. He played on all the great Don Williams stuff. He played on the Birds, Sweetheart of the Rodeo, so there at the kind of big bang of country rock. Played with Johnny Paycheck, Charlie Pride, 
all the way up through the great 80s records Ricky Skaggs made and Nancy Griffith made. And uh, he's still playing now. He plays on my records. And he's done with all those other folks, I think. (laughs) And the way I work with Lloyd is uh, to give him guitar vocals of the songs that I'm working on, just, just me singing and strumming pitifully. And just say, Lloyd, here you go. You... You do your thing here. Create what you want to create. And effectively, I'm asking him to write music, you know, these steel guitar symphonies, which is a, a kind of a jerky thing to do, I suppose. But he takes that freedom as, as a nice license. Steel guitar players get minimized in the studio a lot, and they get told what to play. And just play a little pad here, which means try to play nothing in such a way that it kind of, in the back of some listeners' mind, they're going to think, oh, maybe this is country because I think I heard a steel guitar. It's capable of so much. It's uh, symphonic in its sweep. And so I made one album called the Lloyd Green album that had only, bass was only on one song uh, because I found that the bass frequency would get in the way of of Lloyd's uh, steel a little bit and just wanted to hear that whole thing, the whole spectrum. Um, So... He's just the most inventive musician that uh, I've ever been around and just good as gold as a person as well. And, you know, there are people who make records without him, and I can't figure that out. (laughs) (laughs) There are a few people that I try so hard to steal from every time I write a song, and Chris Christopherson and John Prine guy named Eric Taylor, um, and then Tom T. Hall. And he's he. sometimes people will, maybe they know he's in the Country Music Hall of Fame, maybe they think, oh yeah, he's a country guy and he did some, you know, he did that I Like Beer song or something. And, you know, man, he was an album artist at a time when those didn't exist much in country music. And he was writing two albums a year, 12 songs an album, And maybe two or three of those songs a year would get released as singles. There's all this great stuff that that didn't really get a public hearing. And it's every bit as good as anything that we heard that was a hit single. And so his catalog is just so rich and it's crazy. Love him as a writer. Never passes judgment. Tells these stories without telling you what you should think of the story or who the hero was. And... I guess he helped clue me into country music because at the height of his stardom, when he was at whatever level like Brad Paisley's at now, he said, oh, I'm going to do a kid's album. He did this album called Songs of Fox Hollow for children of all ages, and it was songs about the animals on his farm there in, in Brentwood, Tennessee, Fox Hollow. And I loved it when I was a kid, and it was something that I could listen to in my dad could listen to and enjoy my granddad could listen to and enjoy he had a couple of number one hits off that album big country hits and so when i was uh uh, when i was pregnant with my son i thought what am i going to want him to listen to maybe not the whatever song the purple dinosaur is singing or the little things that go blip blop bloop but man tom t hall's Songs of Fox Hollow album. In fact, the first thing that that was played in the delivery room after he appeared, my son, not Tom T. Hall, was uh, was Tom T.'s "I Love," 
So when my son was an infant, we brought him into the studio, and we also brought in Patty Griffin and Jim Lauderdale and Buddy Miller and Bobby Bear and Dwayne Eddy, Lloyd Green, a bunch of neat folks, and Elizabeth Cook and Tim Carroll. And we re-recorded the songs of Fox Hollow, song by song. And the studio wasn't just any old studio. It was Tom T. Hall's home studio at Fox Hollow. So it's one thing when you call people and say, hey, we're going to do a Tom T. tribute album. Do you want to cut a song? Maybe so. But when you call Patty Griffin and say, uh, hey, do you want to go to Tom T.'s house, hang around, hear him tell stories, and then sing a song for him? That that's a that's a pretty good ask and uh, and she did and she got to see Tom T sitting out he wasn't telling us what to do or giving us opinions but he sat on this little couch while we were recording he was in the control room and when Patty was singing I love first she worried about singing in front of him and said I'm I'm you know what if I what if I miss a lyric or something and Tom T said well if you if you if you if you forget a lyric just just make one up. That's what I did. <laughs> <laughs> then she she sang that song, and I'm playing guitar just about two feet away from where she is, and it's just blowing my mind. And and I look out at the control room, and there's Tom T sitting there on a couch, a little tear coming down his eye, just loving it. And you, that's um, that's a neat day's recording work. You know, we made her do it one more time too, not because she had fouled up the first one, but just because we wanted to hear her do it one more time. <laughs> <laughs> when I moved to Nashville, I wasn't playing music out very much. I might play the Bluebird once a year or something like that, just to kind of remember what it's like to to have a bad monitor mix. Not that the Bluebird has a bad monitor mix, but just to remember what it's like to be on stage and do that kind of thing. I was really concentrating on writing about other people. And... One of those people I wrote about was Todd Snyder, and we got to be friendly, and we found that we shared John Prine and Bobby Bear obsessions and uh, got to sitting around singing songs for each other, and he asked if I'd go out on tour with him. This is in probably 2005. Oh, sure. That sounds like fun. And so then he broke the news to me that if I was going to go out and open shows for him, that I would lose a lot of money unless I had something to sell out there. <laughs> and so I was trying to figure out what that should be, you know, plexiglass or what, what should I sell? It's like, no, man, you need, to, you need to have some music, have an album. So I w- went in very quickly and uh, recorded a little EP with Lloyd Green on steel and had that out so that I I wouldn't lose a lot of money when I was out with Todd. And that really thrust me into doing this in earnest. So Todd really was a big big factor, and and we can blame him for that. And he's been terribly supportive of me uh, throughout throughout this ordeal. Um, He's a great guy and and just loves to play. I'm not sure that people understand the extent to which he works at his song craft and the fact that he gets up every morning and works on what he calls his poems, you know, that that's, it's, it's not some kind of idyllic existence where you just float around. It, it, you got to put pen to paper and you got to work at this stuff and chip away at this stuff and find the place where inspiration meets craft. He's a really good example for that. But I've probably got a lot of stories, but I, I remember one time we were, 
I was playing bass for Todd. Uh, I played bass for Todd on the Tonight Show uh, and on the David Letterman Show and on at some other concert appearances. And I'm a terrible bass player. Maybe I'm a great hang. <laughs> so we're playing one time in Des Moines and we had an afternoon gig at this amphitheater there at the zoo and it was pretty fun and we had a really good show it was me and Todd and Tommy Womack and Todd's friend Dave Zolo was playing at this little club in Des Moines that evening and we didn't have to be back to Nashville until the next day so Todd tells the crowd, "Hey, if you you know if you've been having a good time and want to come out, uh, our friend Dave Zolo's playing at whatever this little tiny bar is, and we'll probably show up and jam with him. So you know, come on if you want to." So by the time we pulled a tour bus up to whatever the little club is <laughs> in Des Moines, <laughs> there's line around several blocks, uh, and this is a place probably held like 85 people supposedly, and they had jammed. 150 or 200 in in there we had to fight our way to the stage you know to to get there it was insanely packed and we got up there and played with dave and and just had a ball but we were playing things that we could play with someone with whom we'd never played before so that meant we were playing chuck berry songs and you know the songs that we all know and love the canon i guess and it was free for anybody who wanted to go in there, for those who got there, they didn't have to pay a cover charge or anything. And so Todd's singing on something and gets done, and this drunk guy fights his way through the crowd to the front. And he had been screaming from the back, and we were pretending we couldn't hear him screaming from the back. And now he's up at the right by the stage, right you know, in Todd's face, going, Hey, man, Quit playing coverage. We didn't come here to hear you play other people's songs. Play your own damn songs. <laughs> and and then there was this like moment of where the cacophony became non-cacophonous. You know, it was that weird, <laughs> awkward, silent moment where maybe somebody drops a fork at the back of the room and you hear that. And then Todd turns around to us in the band and goes... Hey, Tulsa time in E, the long version. (laughs) (laughs) We played 20 minutes of Tulsa time. (laughs) Dedicated it to that guy. I've always been curious when someone dies like uh, George Jones, how do you go about writing that column that you need? I'm guessing you have a really strong deadline and you have to get it out very quickly. Yeah, deadlines are are stranger even now because the deadline is all the time now that now that getting something up online is so important. Uh, we don't at the Tennessean have a very good what they call morgue file, which would be at, at the New York Times. They probably, if you're a fairly important person and you're listening to this, they've probably already written your obituary. That is not the case necessarily uh, in Nashville for our country musicians and and for the musicians that I wind up writing about uh, when they pass. It's a terrible, kind of terrible, glorious assignment. Um, And George Jones, I'd got a call from his hospital room the night before he died saying things were not looking good. And I stayed up all night writing 
about him. And when I got the news in the morning that he had passed, I, I fairly quickly was able to have something up online because I had spent the past eight hours doing that through the night. It's like being in college or something. But um, the really strange part of it comes uh, when it's somebody that you know, and that is often the case for me. You know, George Jones is somebody that I knew. He was a person. Um, most recently, and probably the hardest one I've ever had to write, was when Cowboy Jack Clement died. And he was just a complete inspiration as a person and uh, and as a musician and as a music maker and always try to live by his mantra, hey, remember, we're in the fun business. If we're not having fun. We ain't doing our job. But got the word that he had died, and then I had to quickly process that information, you know, spend a few moments thinking about what that meant for me, you know, that my friend was gone, and then attempt to put a lifetime uh, into some kind of perspective in a way that somebody who picks up the newspaper and doesn't know a lot about him, you know, this is kind of my last chance at an introduction uh, from introduce these people to who this great man was and what he did and why and how. And so those are, those are tough to write. The pressure is trying to do justice to, to these people. I mean, when, when, remember when Chet Atkins died and Waylon Jennings looked at me and said, write him up as good as you can, Haas. You can't write him as good as he was. That's, that's the pressure. Man, the pressure of, of when, about a year after I'd been in Nashville, um, I met Johnny Cash, and I did something that I don't normally do before I was supposed to talk to him, I, um, I'd say, or before I was supposed to interview him. I said, man, I just before we start, I just wanted to say thank you for the hundreds of hours that were better than they would have been if I hadn't been listening to you singing and to your music. Thank you. I, I'm just a fan. Thank you. And he said, well, Peter, I'm a fan of yours, too. That newspaper hits my yard every morning. I read what you have to say. I read what you said last week about blah, blah, blah. And at first I was, I had this tremendous, like nearly floating feeling that I hadn't had since the time I uh, tore my ACL and was introduced to morphine. <laughs> but it was really great for a moment. And then after about 10 seconds of feeling really good, it, it hit me. Johnny Cash reads what I do. That means that thing I wrote last night on deadline that I kind of, you know, farted out there, Johnny Cash read that too. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing I'm supposed to write next week, Johnny Cash is going to read. And uh, that's that's the pressure. It's one thing to be worried about what an editor in a newsroom is going to think. But it's another to know, like, I know for sure that Tom T. Hall has a Tennessean subscription. And so that that means that anything I write about music is going to be read by people who uh, know the whole deal about music. And um, they're, they're going to know whether I'm telling the truth or not, and they're going to know whether I know what I'm talking about. Do you ever have any moments when uh, there was someone reading it that it turns out bad? <laughs> yeah, they're... they're uh, there's always somebody who's going to take something some other way, and now they can publish their views via the interweb. 
and that's fine too. Um, and that's that's the small cost that gets that you have to pay when you're lucky enough to do what I'm doing when I'm writing about music. One time I got a email that said, "Get paid for your opinion." It was like some kind of email scam, and I was like, "I do." <laughs> <laughs> that's cool. Um, through the years, I have. Um, this is a strange sentence, but I've gotten to be friends with Chris Christopherson. Very first concert I ever saw when I was five years old, Chris Christopherson and Rita Coolidge at Carowinds Amusement Park. And uh, he's a wonderful guy, and he's, he's big on beauty and truth. He's big into those concepts. He likes to tell the truth. He's not a bullshitter. And I had heard a story from him uh, about how at a Madison Square Garden function, it was Willie Nelson's birthday thing, uh, he was walking around backstage and Toby Keith was on that show and Toby had said something to him about, uh, don't, don't do any of that lefty shit out there, Chris. And Chris had a quick and verbally violent retort, you know, that involved, well, let's... Tell me when you've served your country and, you know, when you've fought for this country and then you can tell me whether I can spew my political opinion, you know. Um, Chris was an army ranger. And so I'd heard that story and it was unsurprising uh, that that was the way that situation went from both sides. And then Chris wound up telling that story to uh, a guy who was writing a, a piece about Chris in Rolling Stone magazine's author, uh, uh, actor, what was the guy's name? Ethan Hawke. Ethan Hawke, yeah. And Ethan Hawke penned a really good piece in Rolling Stone about Chris, and I thought it, I thought it was very good. And it came out, but there was a, it related that incident, but they didn't mention Toby Keith's name. They just, they just said, uh, I don't know if the editors didn't want to put Toby's name in or whatever, but they said, uh, you know, it was a, a one contemporary country singer who uh, has a song about how we'll put a boot in the ass of our enemies or something like that. That's a paraphrase, but it was obvious that they were talking about Toby Keith. And I had heard the story from Chris anyway. And Chris's camp had actually seen and fact-checked the story, by the way. So, you know, he was aware. The Rolling Stone story? Yeah, the Rolling Stone story. So I was writing in in some little quippy column about, you know, the, you know there's a neat... Rolling Stone story by Ethan Hawke about Chris Christopherson. And, you know, the one weird thing is that you know, it mentions this uh, contemporary country star who has a song about putting a boot in the ass of our enemies, you know, wonder who that could be. And I wrote, you know, <laughs> might his name rhyme with Moby Teeth? <laughs> so I'm in Vegas at the Academy of Country Music Awards and um, uh, word comes to me that Toby Keith is furious, apparently not with Ethan Hawke, but with me, and feels like I had made fun of him somehow by, uh, by, you know, writing Moby Teeth or, or something. Okay, so I offered to meet up with the esteemed Mr. Teeth and uh, talk to him about it, whatever, and, and uh, didn't do that. But no, he wanted to make a public showing out of it. And so at the ACM Awards, even though he didn't, win anything it's traditional that anybody who wins comes to the little press area and talk, tells you how it feels to win 
but he came down and to uh, to sc- like do a whole professional wrestler scream fest at me, and uh, I bet you thought that was funny, didn't you? I was like, at the time, <laughs> <laughs> there was some little. I, God, I remember there was like an eight year old girl uh, who had come in there. Maybe her dad wrote for a Vegas paper or something that was sitting there, and and he just cussing a blue streak and 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 just being jerky and it was a total professional wrestling you know um fake showdown thing and i i was unable to say anything without adding to the story that he was creating right there so just you know it was one of those where you just have to sit and hold your tongue so i did that 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 was that was quite interesting. Later, Chris Christopherson released a statement saying, you know, hey, I'm friends with Ethan Hawke, Toby Keith, and Peter Cooper. And, you know, it's a, but he, um, Chris called me the next day and was like, man, I'm sorry. I guess I, you know, put you in a weird position or something, threw you under the bus. And I was like, man, you, you know, just, it's, it's all good. Uh, and I'll, I'll take, um, I'll take a being Chris's friend on public record, you know, if uh, I'll, I'll, I'll take whatever tongue lashing uh, Moby teeth needs to give. <laughs> that. Did um, Chris Christofferson say to you and on the phone call that that is actually what happened that night? Oh, Chris and Chris and I had talked about that before and, and yeah, certainly that was he corroborated. That was, that. Yeah. Yeah. That wow. was a, a, yeah. I would think that a man who advocates putting uh a bomb up someone's ass might be a little more thick skinned with the press. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'll also say this though. Um, I've only had a couple of bad interactions, uh, with these people. And, and in each case it was with somebody who's, uh, I don't sit around and listen to their music for pleasure. Um, when I moved to Nashville, a lot of people told me, don't, don't ever meet your heroes. They'll disappoint you. And I've found that, to be entirely untrue, and I found that you don't get to be Chris Christopherson and write songs that are that smart and empathetic and and brilliant without being a smart, empathetic, brilliant person. You can't do it. You cannot fake a Chris Christopherson song. You can't fake Sunday Morning Coming Down and not be that guy. And I've found that time and again, uh, particularly with songwriters, that. Um, they are the people in those songs and there's no moving them from it. And they're not trying to fake you out. They're not trying to act one way. Uh, they're trying to open up their heart. And when they do that well and you know something beautiful pours out, there's, there's a reason for that. These are often just beautiful people. When Amy and I first moved to Nashville, about a week later, we ran into Chuck Mead and he told us that there was a party going on here in the neighborhood and told us we wanted to come out to it. it ended up being at your house and your neighbor's house and i remember on the front porch was um a band which consisted of you tim carroll ws holland and cowboy jack yeah and jen gunderman and jen gunderman chuck me and eric brace and i remember sitting back and thinking well this is going to be all right <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> welcome yeah. to nashville <laughs> yeah right and and it was all right, and it that was that's a good welcome to Nashville moment. Things like that really can and do 
happened here? Yeah, I stood on my neighbor's porch and played blue suede shoes with the guy playing drums who <laughs> played drums <laughs> on blue suede shoes. Yeah, and played Cowboy Jack Clement songs with Cowboy Jack Clement. That's pretty incredible. That's good. For no dough and, and just having a ball. That's what this town uh, can and should be, and, and on a good night, what it is. There were about 18 of us sitting out in lawn chairs in the front yard. just Yeah, kids, enjoy- kids running around. Yeah. Oh, yes. I really appreciate you meeting up with me over here at Eric's house and uh, chatting with me. At the Red Beat Records headquarters, that's where we are. Man. Red Beat Records headquarters. Yeah, yeah, Beautiful. this is the Nerve Center. Man, it's been a ball. I love, love this podcast, and I download everyone and, and listen to them. I think you're doing a great job, and it's helping me understand more about people whose music... Uh, I admire and that I listen to. It's a really neat window into folks, uh, sometimes that I thought I know really well, and then I find different things out about them listening to this. It's a really valuable thing you're doing here. Thank you. I'm just making it up as I go along best I can. That's what we do. I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank Peter for meeting up with me at our buddy Eric Brace's house here in East Nashville. You can find out everything you need to know about Peter at PeterCooperMusic.com. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to OtisGibbs.com and you can pick up a CD, a t-shirt, you can download any record I've ever made, you can buy one of my photographic prints, you can buy one of Amy's records, you can buy one of Amy's children's books, but anything that you buy, we'll mail from our living room to yours and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment. Subscribe while you're there, and you'll get a brand new episode free every Wednesday. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.